If you would, open up in your copy of the scripture to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be considering tonight verses 11, 12, and 13. I'll read from verse 5 to the end of the chapter for context this evening. And as you turn there, I will recount for you, some years ago, I had the opportunity to attend a Bible study, and people from all different church backgrounds, some with no church backgrounds, were there, and it was around Easter time, and a man there told us that he had been going to a church for over 30 years, one that would be considered quite a liberal church, and he had never understood in all his time there why it was that Jesus died on the cross rather than Barabbas. No, no idea about that. And I was reflecting on that as I thought about this chapter, because this chapter too, if we could put a theme around the whole chapter, it would be, why did Jesus Christ, the mediator, need to come to men, suffer and die? And we've been considering that in past weeks, and we saw that the mediator had to come, Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, so that he could taste death for everyone, that he could be captain of salvation, as we'll see tonight, that he could sanctify a people for himself and call them brethren. And we'll see in future weeks, God willing, that he might destroy death for his people. So with that in mind, as we consider these things, let's turn then to verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 2. This is the word of God. Give your attention to it. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil." And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. 
Almighty God, our Father, as your saints of old gathered around that old covenant sacrifice in the evening to offer up that evening sacrifice of worship and prayer, and as your saints in the New Testament gathered in the evening to hear your word preached, so we have gathered this evening to do the same. And we ask that this evening you would cause your spirit to descend upon us once again, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our God, our Rock, and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are driving north on I-85, just south of Spaghetti Junction, you might have noticed a billboard that was there in recent months with these words advertising one of our area hospitals. Health is everything. Quite a statement to be made, but not a surprising one given the events of the last few years. Health is everything. I wonder what the person thinks of that sign as they drive by with health having escaped them. I wonder what the person this evening who sees their life slowly coming to a close thinks of that statement as they think that one day, perhaps soon, the health that they're supposed to consider as everything will one day be gone from them. I hope that there is no Christian that adopts that statement of that hospital, that health is everything. For there is something far greater that we should give our attention to, that we should consider to be everything. There's perhaps many things that we might consider our everything in Scripture. There's one above all else. Jesus Christ is our all in all. He is everything to us. But as we look at ourselves in relationship to Jesus Christ, perhaps what we should consider our everything is the name that Jesus Christ gives to us. In our text tonight, the Lord Jesus gives a name to his people that is a great name that we should desire and be sure that we have upon ourselves. It is the name of brethren. Brethren, for as the end of verse 11 tells us, God is not ashamed to call us brethren. This is a glorious part of Scripture, seeing the name that God places among his people. Some of the highlights of the Scripture have to do with this very topic. You might remember in the first letter of John, in the third chapter, those famous words that many hymns have come from. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Or even as we read and heard preached in recent weeks from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children of God, sons of God, brethren. My question for you this evening from this text is, are you among the brethren? Are you among those that Jesus Christ himself would say, I am not ashamed to call you brethren? Well, how can we receive such a title? And in verse 11, we see just how someone might receive this title. And it's given to us in the first half of that verse. For both he who sanctifies 
and those who are being sanctified are all of one. Here he is who receives the title brethren, the sanctified. And so the question then comes to us as a subsidiary question, are we among the sanctified? Because it's the sanctified that Jesus is not ashamed to call brethren. Sanctified. What do you think about this word, this title that comes to Jesus? He is the sanctifier, the one who sanctifies, and he came and he sanctified a people for himself. Well, as good Christians, we probably think of sanctified in terms of the order of salvation and sanctification. As our catechism says, it's the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. But I think as you read through the scripture, you might see that the term sanctified is actually used less frequently for that sanctification, that's the order of salvation, and used more frequently simply to mean this, set apart by God for a holy purpose. Now, certainly God's people in their sanctification are set apart for a holy purpose. But God does more in the scripture than set apart people. He also sets apart days. In Genesis 2 and verse 3, God took the seventh day, and he made it the Sabbath, and he sanctified it and blessed it, setting it apart from the other days of the week. You can read through the scripture and see families that are sanctified, the tabernacle and its instruments being sanctified, pots and vessels being sanctified, meaning this, they are set apart by God for a holy purpose. Christ here is the sanctifier. And he sanctifies or sets apart a people whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. But we should ask ourselves a question at this point. Why does man need a sanctifier? It's similar to the question we asked last time. Why does man need a captain of salvation? And it brings us right to the very heart of that thing that is most offensive to men, but which is very true, and that is that man is sinful Man is unholy. Apart from God, we are the vilest of sinners and wretched in his sight, deserving only death and punishment. We need to be sanctified by the one who sanctifies even Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yesterday in Atlanta, when witnessing for Christ, there was a brother that was with us there from South Carolina and in the morning, a man in a red BMW convertible pulled up in front of where we were and he yelled out, you guys are sinners, shame on you. And the brother that was with me said to him, you're right, and God has said far worse of me in his word. Oh, that you would come to Christ confessing his name. Are you offended by this title that is ours by, because of our sin? Sinner, an offender, unholy before God. That's our state apart from Christ. Unholy. And we must and we need to be sanctified. Well, how can we be sanctified by the Savior? The, the Lord says something here that has caused quite a lot of discussion over the years, where he says that those that uh, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are 
all of one. And some have taken this, as liberalism took this some 150 years ago, to the almost complete destruction of the Protestant and faithful Bible-believing church in Europe, and almost, almost to its destruction in the United States. There was this statement, maybe you've heard this before, that Christianity is all about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. The universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. And the meaning behind all this was that we are all basically in one position before God. And since he created us, we're in that position. And at that point, they're correct. God is the creator of all men. But where they would go with that is is saying, as this verse does, that we are all of one, that merely it means to be one with him who sanctifies and with God is simply to be a created human being. That God is the father of all humans. It sounds good. The problem is, God the Father is never referred to in that, with that title as Father of all people. He is Father to a select group, His own children, those whom He chose before the foundation of the world. And He brings them to Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ. But what about this universal brotherhood of man? Again, it sounds good. Are not all men my brethren? That's actually not what the Lord says either in his word, does he? But he does say this, all men are your neighbors, that we are to love all men and live peaceably with all men, but not all men receive this title, brethren. It is only those who have been sanctified by the Son, those who have been set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ to be a holy people, a holy priesthood, worshiping and serving God, being living temples before him. It's not all men in every place. Surely we are of one with Jesus Christ by our nature. He became man. The eternal Son of God took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. Praise be to God. As we expand in Hebrews chapter 2, we'll read about just the benefits to us that Christ did take our nature, that he did take on flesh. But here, while that's included, there's something much more about us who are sanctified and Jesus Christ the sanctifier that makes us one. And that is the unity that we have with Christ by the Spirit. There is a spiritual unity. Elder Hastings taught this morning on that great statement by Jesus, I am the vine, you are the branches. There's a unity there between the branches in Christ. They are of one, one vine. There is a unity between the one who sanctifies and the ones that are sanctified in and through the Spirit of God. The sanctifier and the sanctified are one. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord tells us that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And in chapter 6 and verse 17 of the same book, he says, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. One spirit with the Lord. What an amazing statement. Can you understand that union that we have with Christ Jesus the Lord so that God would tell us we're one with Christ? Christ in us and us in him. Or Ephesians 2 and verse 8, For through him, that is Christ, we have access 
by one Spirit unto the Father. We are of one, sanctified by Christ. Other passages in Scripture tell us that we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, Romans 15 and verse 16, and in other places that we're sanctified by God. It's one of those great statements in Scripture that is attributed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reminding us that we serve not three gods, but one God in three persons. It is God who sanctifies It is Christ Jesus here who sanctifies, and we are those in Christ who are being sanctified, set apart. So I ask again, are you numbered among those who are being sanctified? The sons, the many sons of verse 10 that are being brought to glory, they are being sanctified. Notice that word there. They are being sanctified. It's not a statement here of they might be sanctified. If you are a child of God, you are being sanctified. It's altogether impossible for God to save someone, to justify them, and not sanctify them. Every single person who is a child of God is justified and sanctified. There's no one without the other. They're distinct They're distinct works of God, or an act of God in the case of justification, a work in the case of sanctification. They're distinct, but they're together in the one that is saved. There's an immediate aspect. When one is born again, he's immediately a child of God. He's sanctified in that sense definitively. He's set apart immediately. That that woman, that man that puts their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, evidencing to the world that they have been regenerated at that moment, at that time, they are set apart. But there is also an ongoing nature of sanctification. It's a progressive nature. There's a continual putting to death the old man, a continual putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, the towards the end of that chapter that's often remembered as a chapter about submitting to governors and rulers, at the end of that chapter we have this great statement on sanctification in Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe it reminds you of Ephesians, put on the whole armor of God. And with all that, put on prayer. The question tonight is not, do you believe? The question tonight is, what is the Spirit doing in you who have believed? What is taking place by God's powerful Spirit, Him who sanctifies you? How are you being sanctified tonight? There is no accepting Christ and not living for Christ. It's an impossibility. Elder Hastings made reference to that this morning as well. The question is, has your life changed? You who have professed with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, have confessed that you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, how has your life changed by the Spirit of Christ that's working in you? You must have faith. But what kind of faith? It must be a living faith. 
A faith that's alive for Christ. A faith that's applied. A faith that's not conformed to this world, but's being transformed by the renewing of our minds to the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. That's what takes place in the one that is sanctified. Or the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 12 and verse 14, Be holy, even as your Father in heaven is holy. Without holiness no man will see the Lord. Is your desire tonight to be holy as the Lord is holy? Is your desire tonight to be separate and separated from the world, not to, not to be removed from it, for else where would the salt and the light be in the world? But to be separate from it because you have nothing to do with its sin and darkness and have everything to do with Christ and his light. We are to be holy as Christ is holy. We are being sanctified and are united to Christ by his spirit. Let us be holy. What benefits do come to those that are living in such a way because they've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is given to us at the, in the second half of the verse, as we started with tonight, that Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, is not ashamed to call them brethren who he has sanctified. Those that are being sanctified, Christ is not ashamed to call brethren. This is a marvelous statement. That he who had all the riches and has all the riches in heaven and in earth, who made all things, who stretched out the heavens like a span, that this one, this God, is not ashamed to call us brethren. Why is he not ashamed? Why does he not look down upon those that he purchased with his own blood and doesn't hide his face in shame at them as we sin each day, as we turn back to him in repentance of faith? Why is he not ashamed? What have we been seeing in Hebrews chapter 2? Are not these the very ones that Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood? He died for his children. He shed his blood on the cross so that his children might live. He took all the torments that the Romans and the Jews could give to him, not because he did anything to deserve it. He did that in the place of his children. He tasted death for every one of his brethren. He went through those great sufferings that he might be the perfect captain of our salvation. This is the work that Christ came to do, and he did it. He did it for us. It was a substitutionary work a vicarious atonement. He took our place. It wasn't for himself. It was for all those that believe on him, for his children. It says so much in the verses 12 and 13, which are three texts from the Old Testament that are quoted here. The writer of Hebrews loves to quote the Old Testament as he proclaims the glories of Christ. And he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in verse 12. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, quoting Psalm 22. In verse 13, he'll quote from 2 Samuel 22, 3, and Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17 and 18, showing forth that this was always the plan of Christ, that he was never ashamed to call them brethren who were being sanctified by the sanctifier. We can even put it like this. For Jesus to be ashamed of his brethren To be ashamed of those that he shed his blood for would be for him to be ashamed of himself and his work on the cross. 
Is Christ ashamed of the work that he did on the cross? Or is it for that work that he came to man? He came to us. He came to men that he might shed his blood for us and he cannot be ashamed of the work that he came to do. It was a perfect work. He purchased a people for himself and he is not ashamed to call them brethren. As Jesus died on that cursed tree, many have thought in their minds that it was for no known people. Some have said in different views of Scripture, some who have erred from the faith greatly, that Jesus died for this reason, to give every man, woman, and child a chance at salvation. I hope you don't believe that tonight. Hebrews 2 verse 11 won't let you believe that tonight. Jesus did not go to the cross to give people a chance. Jesus went to the cross with the names of every one of the children of God, as it were, written on his hands. He knew every single son that would be brought to glory, and he laid down his life and shed his blood for them. You who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, he died on that cross for you and knew you by name. He's not ashamed to call his children brethren. We should also consider this very title. It is Christ that gives us this name, brethren. What condescension that the King of glory would stoop down to use this name, bringing us up to his level and him coming down to our level to call us brethren. We don't ever see in the scripture any one of the apostles speaking of Jesus in this way. This is a title altogether of the Lord to his people, brethren. And it's always proper for his people to approach him, Lord, God, Jesus. But he stoops down to call us brethren. Well, the text tells us that he is not ashamed to call those that are being sanctified brethren. And there's a, a question that we need to ask ourselves in this. Are we ashamed to call those who are being sanctified by Jesus brethren? Are we ashamed? Some think so low of the people of God that they refuse to even go to churches. There's some that think that Christ is no longer sovereign, and so they won't enter into a church claiming that they're all apostate. There's some think that no Christians are as pure as they are, and so they're unwilling to commune with them in the fellowship of the Lord's Supper, or even sometimes to go into a church. They might make extra-biblical provisions, thinking that you must agree with them on things that are maybe, maybe implied in Scripture, but are certainly not the first, second, or third things of the doctrines of God. And they're willing to break fellowship over it. We've had people like that in our church. We've had people like that who have visited, who are ashamed to call brethren those for whom Christ died. Are you ashamed to call brothers and sisters who have made the good profession, who have made that profession of Jesus Christ as Lord and God, are you ashamed to call them your brethren? Jesus is not. Can we despise one who is saved of God and separate ourselves from them as if they are part of the world? You remember that even Peter, the apostle, 
that he was tempted and even stepped away from the Gentile Christians. Paul records this for us in Galatians chapter 2. When the Jewish Christians came in, Peter was there eating with Gentile Christians, and he was ashamed of them. And he got up and stood off with the Jews, and Paul says he condemned him to his face. He confronted him. Jesus Christ is not ashamed of his brethren. He ate with the sinners because he was saving sinners. And Peter had to repent and confess his sin of being ashamed of those whom Christ purchased. Are we ashamed of the brethren? Can we despise a church where the gospel is preached, even if maybe we don't agree with them on every single point of doctrine? We ought not to be ashamed of those whom Christ has saved. And going back to one of our verses where we considered much about revival in verse 10, speaking of the many sons to glory, Revival takes place when Christians are willing to work across denominational lines for this reason, the great commission of the Lord. The spreading of the gospel that lost souls might be saved. There ought not to be concern. We ought to pray. I wish every person that's going to be saved in Atlanta would come into this church. Of course, I hope and pray for that. But we ought to pray that God would save people around Atlanta and send them to Bible-believing churches, wherever that one is, and rejoice when they are there. We ought not to despise other Bible-believing churches because they're a little different than we are. That doesn't mean we don't pray for them to reform, as I hope they're praying that we reform. But we do not despise those that Christ has shed his blood for. I remember hearing long ago when I was a little child, a minister who is no longer alive. In a way, as I remember it, it seemed to be almost boasting that Charles Spurgeon would have never been allowed to preach in his pulpit because he was a Baptist. Terrible. Can you imagine that? Charles Spurgeon was alive and wanted to preach in a Presbyterian pulpit and he not being allowed to do so. We ought not to despise or to be ashamed of those whom Christ has shed his blood for. In the book of Proverbs, we have this warning in Proverbs 6. One of the uh, things that God hates. He says there's six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And in this list of, of terrible things, including the shedding of innocent blood, the last one in that list is the one who sows discord among the brethren. The one who sows discord, who causes trouble for the brothers in the church. This is one of the things the Lord says he hates. The strongest language the Lord uses. It's an abomination in his sight. Why? Why? Parents, let me ask you this. And children, you can think about this. What can cause more grief in your life than someone coming in and dividing your children against each other? Or even if you have several children, one of the children causing division among the other children. There's few things that can cause greater frustration and sorrow of soul, and I hope lead to prayer for parents than seeing children against children. Or some sort of false teaching coming in as the children are older that separates the children from the parents. What a grievous thing. Some parents in this church are dealing with those very things. Some of you know and have tasted some of these very things yourself. When some teaching or some person comes in and divides a family, what or how much more the family of God? Those that Christ shed his blood for, someone would come in and divide? Christ is not divided. And people would come in and divide it. The Lord says, he hates these things. They are his children. Are you ashamed 
to call God's brethren your brethren. But we can go further. Are you ashamed to call him who sanctifies us your Lord? In Matthew chapter 10, we read this. Matthew 10, verse 32 and 33, the Lord Jesus speaking, he says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. Are we ashamed to call Christ our Lord? He says in the world, confess me and I'll confess you before my Father. In the church, we have that opportunity for people to make that profession of faith public, as we saw just last week, another person doing it. Praise be to the Lord. What a glorious thing. Scripture coming to life. People confessing 2,000 years after Christ spoke these words. People being moved by the Spirit, born again and confessing his name before a watching world. Are we ashamed to do that? What about when we are meeting with family members or, or colleagues or just neighbors And they might ask who we are and what we do. Do we let them know that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior? He is not ashamed of us. Let us not be ashamed of him. But why why might someone, why might someone be ashamed of the brethren? Why might someone be ashamed of the Lord? Usually, the reason would be because their life isn't one that is looking as if it's being sanctified. It can be because a person's fallen into grievous and scandalous sin. And so they look around at those that are being sanctified and do not see themselves like that and start to grow envious, start to cause trouble. And the Lord would use this passage to call people to repent of the sin. If you don't see yourself walking as Christ has ordained you to walk, Confess the sin before the Lord. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, especially now as the day of the Lord's coming is much nearer than when we first believed. Repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and set yourself yourself to do his will in all things. Put off the deeds of the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. There was in Jesus' day a time when you'll remember Jesus was teaching the multitudes and he was talking to them in Matthew chapter 12 and his mother and brothers came outside and they were in the multitude. They couldn't get in. It was too many people. And someone finally passed the word on to Jesus and said, Jesus, outside your mothers and your brothers are there. And what is it that Jesus said in verse 48 of Matthew 12? Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Here is what Jesus is getting at in this text of Hebrews 12, Hebrews 2 and verse 11. These are the brethren, those that do the will of the Father in heaven. Who can do the will of the Father in heaven but he who is being sanctified? So all of these things come together. Let us put off the deeds of the flesh. Let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us not be ashamed to call those whom Christ has died for brethren Christian. There is a day coming, and this is my final heading, the great consummation of the Lord. 
There is the day coming that our minds should be focused on as we read this verse, as we think about being sanctified. We're being sanctified for this purpose, that we might be perfected, that we might be glorified. Right now we are the sons going to glory, and the captain of our salvation is leading us there. And no one that he has saved will be able to escape him. Praise be to God. He who has started it will begun it. The day of glory and consummation is coming. It's a day that we should all long for. All the brethren of Jesus Christ should have this in their mind always. I hope not a day goes by without you thinking about standing before the throne of God at that great day of the Lord, for it's coming. Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, maybe many generations from now. And Jesus gives us this great foretaste of that day in verse 13 as he quotes the Old Testament and says, here am I and the children that you have given me. It's a picture of the day of consummation. As you'll remember from the parable, children, I hope you remember this parable of the wheat and the tares, where the tares are bound up at the great day of consummation. They're cast into the furnace, but the wheat, they're gathered up and they're brought into the barn. That's the picture that's here, the end of the world, the end of the age, when Jesus Christ, who ascended, descends and comes and gathers the children. Here is what he's going to do. He's going to present his children before the Father. Here am I and the children that you have given me. They're being sanctified right now. They're being prepared for that glory. That's the day that we should be longing for, when the Lord Jesus will return And will present us before the Lord in this way, brethren, my brethren. That's the day we should be all about, that we should be pressing on for. There's a picture here, maybe some of you have already recognized it, of those great verses in Romans chapter 8. And can't help but see an overlap in the author's thinking between Romans and Hebrews. But in that great golden chain of salvation, we read in verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. There it is, bringing many sons to glory. They're looking forward to the day of glory. Jesus is bringing us to the great consummation. As he says in 1 John 2, Now little children abide in him, that when he appears we may not be ashamed, but we may have confidence at his coming. No one can take us from him. Those that are being sanctified will be perfected to the day of glory. There is an absolute assurance in this that's given not just in this verse, but throughout Hebrews 2 and the whole book. Romans 8 gives one of the greatest statements of assurance in all the scripture. No one can take us from him. We are by election, by the purchase of the blood of Christ, by new birth, by union with Christ, by sanctification, by justification, by adoption, we are his brethren. And it's not for this life only, but it's for the life to come. What is everything for you? Is Jesus Christ everything for you? Is the title that is written on your heart everything to you? It is only those that have this title 
brethren who will stand before the Lord in that great day of consummation. And everyone who has that title, brethren, will stand before the Lord in that great day. The Father is bringing many sons to glory through the captain of salvation, perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and they who are being sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do praise and exalt you. For you have stooped and condescended among a sinful people to give to us everlasting life through your blood. We thank you for showing this great love and mercy, grace to us. We confess that we are sometimes ashamed of naming you as our Lord. We're acknowledging others as brethren. Forgive us. Help us, O Lord, to acknowledge you and confess you before men and to confess our brothers before men as well. We ask, Lord, that you would cause your name to be written on all of us, that all together, every person here tonight might be kept to the day of perfection and might be presented before the Father by you in this way. Here are my brethren. We ask now that you would sanctify us continually by your truth. Your word is truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.